This week in the Enterprise Security News, how RSA Conference 2021 has changed its dates from February to May. Docker partners with Sneak on container image, image vulnerability scanning. Venify acquires JetStack to bring together developer speed and enterprise security. Onapsis expands assessments for its business risk illustration service. Volterra launches VoltShare, simplifying the process of securely encrypting confidential data. All that and more in that segment. In the second segment, Dan DeClos, president and CEO of PlexTrack, will talk about managing enterprise security assessments all in one place. In our final segment, DJ Sampath, the co-founder and CEO of ArmorBlocks, will talk about dealing with phishing attacks that are outside of email. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. The Viavi Solutions Observer Platform provides SecOps teams a powerful combination of comprehensive data for threat hunting and incident response that includes wire data analytics and enriched flow records. Using pure, unaltered packet and net flow, Observer presents views across the entire IT infrastructure with threat alert features including scope, impact, and advanced traffic profiling. Teams can use automated workflows to dive into high-fidelity network evidence and more quickly resolve issues, minimizing impact on customers, users, and business operations. Learn more about the Viavi Network Security Solution and download free resources at securityweekly.com forward slash Viavi. That's V-I-A-V-I. You want to get the right things done for your security program. Sounds simple. But what are the right things for you? What does done mean? And how are you going to get there? Rapid7 realizes more than anyone how hard this can be. While Rapid7's Insight platform offers you industry-leading vulnerability management and detection and response solutions, their focus is on understanding where you are so that they can help you get where you're going. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Rapid7 to get started. Welcome to episode 184 of Enterprise Security Weekly for May 20th, 2020. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, joined remotely from the Science Lab, Mr. John Strand. Hello, happy to be here. It's finally summer here, which is great. It was like snowing last time I was on the show, and now right. it's like 80 degrees. It's beautiful. That's awesome. From our remote studios in Colorado, Mr. Matt Alderman is here with us. Matt, welcome. Happy Wednesday, hump day, right before a long holiday weekend. That's it. That's it. Uh, join us for InfoSec World 2020, June 22nd through the 24th, a now fully virtual event. Our listeners receive 15% off the InfoSec World Conference uh, or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2020. Click the register button to register with our discount code. Also, Security Weekly mailing list, uh, we invite you to join our list, receive invites to our Discord community. You can visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe, join the list, as well as subscribe to all of our other shows on the network. And now, the Enterprise Security News. Where'd you guys want to start? You were talking a lot about containers, right, as I was getting excited I, I, for the I show. I say we go in order. Let's talk about the Scout. That's the one that I think that we got the most excited about out of the gate. Yeah, so it has, and we don't often cover it this way, but an acquisition has failed to materialize. An acquisition of Forescout for $1.9 billion? 
Yeah, which makes total sense with the world changing as quickly as it did. Um, oh, yeah. This is something Matt and I were yeah. talking about. It's just this I, – they lost almost a billion dollars in value because everybody's wow. working from home right now. And I love Forescout. I want to make it very clear. As a pen tester, you go into a network if they have good network access control, even though Forescout hates it whenever I call their product NAC. NAC yeah, because they try and not call it NAC because it got a bad no, reputation, no. but it's NAC. I mean, let's... It's NAC. It's just really good NAC. Um, whenever it's implemented, it's working well. It is a very solid, formidable product to deal with. But how the hell do you sell something like Forescout if all of your people are literally working remotely? Good luck if, with that. NAC's intent is to authenticate people before they join the network. If you're remote and you use a VPN, it does that inherently. It does. But one of the things I, I wish Forescout would do is if you do have people connecting to the VPN, do the Forescout type checks before they're actually allowed onto the rest of the corporate network. Agreed. Almost Cisco, like struggled with, right. Cisco struggled with that. And I'm not sure what it looks like today because I haven't done a VPN implementation uh, to yeah. that level in some time, right? Like WireGuard's awesome. Yeah. It's easy to set up for small groups or individuals, right? But at an enterprise level, um, I, I don't know. I would lean more towards uh, Netscope, and I think we have something from uh, Illumio. Is no, not Illumio. Illumio. Uh, maybe someone oh, else different. similar in that space, right? It's uh, basically the SD WAN uh, component. Um, yeah. Whatever Six Terra became, Matt knows. Oh, Six Terra. Um, uh, AppGate, I think, is what App they're Gate. called now, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, I would look at that yeah. technology. Yeah, I, I just feel uh, bad. So for I, I, I oh, do too. So, I mean, the the interesting part about this is the deal was announced in February. Before, obviously, we went through the last few months. Um, valuation at the time made sense, right? Mm -hmm. Now, here we are, three months later, still trying to figure out what's going on in this new world. And to John's point, look. If nobody's on your network, it's really hard to justify acquiring a network access control product. Mm -hmm. uh, so the valuation dropped from 1.9 to 1.05 billion, which put the deal upside down, right, mm -hmm. for the private equity firm. Right. Um, and, yep. and look, I don't think this is the only company that goes through this kind of same um, uh, evaluation either. I think there's other public companies sitting out there that could see some of the same potential issues. And I think there's a ton of private companies that are looking for funding that may also fall into this bucket as well, unfortunately. But, you know, this is just the reality of where we are today. Mm. Well, and there's some things in this article that I think are interesting. Um, one of the paragraphs in here is the sentence on its own. It said, if the deal is eventually canceled, then the buyers will be required to pay for scout compensation of 112 million dollars and i and i i hate to say this but that's a bargain for that investment yeah. firm to get the hell away from them right um at this point and that's a horrible thing to say because like i said i love for scout but there's no way that that company that was going to buy them was ever going to see a return on investment on that and it's hard to be that large and make a pivot because they, they certainly mm -hmm. if they have awesome technology they could certainly pivot right but that's Holy crap, they, a company that well, Yeah, they made a couple acquisitions in the ICS space to try to pivot yeah. into the mm. OT side of the house. But again, you're right, Paul, it's very difficult for a large company, and, but that, especially a large and, public company, yes. to pivot. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to justify almost $2 billion in Agreed. value. Agreed. Yeah. So we, we got really lucky on this. I, I, I think about it. We uh, 
um, with 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 active countermeasures, we actually started in October. I was telling Matt this to basically starting to pull network traffic uh, information off of endpoints. Mm-hmm. So we basically, as soon as COVID hit and everyone started working from home, we're like, holy crap, we totally dodged that bullet, um, and it's been working pretty well for us. But there's so many companies, like Matt said, larger companies, they can't pivot that quick. Yep, agreed. Docker has partnered with Sneak on container image vulnerability scanning. Can I say finally? somebody yeah um i mean dtr has been a train wreck from like day one almost i mean looking at the docker trusted registry the scan results were never really that good they weren't sneak is a partner of ours on application security Mm -hmm. weekly i think they do a fantastic job of understanding uh, all the third-party library dependencies, including the dependencies of dependencies of dependencies. Right. They call those um, transient, transient yeah. dependencies, right, which I had not yes. really uh, considered with this problem until we were doing a briefing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a great point, actually, because how many of us have been in dependency hell, right? Whether it's you know every time software or just open source you know operating systems whatever uh, writing your own software it's it's all the time uh, and well, it's challenging to get it working and then understand the dependencies of dependencies and down that train which one might introduce a vulnerability. Well, and this is just a new way of thinking about everything. I, I was surprised um, when we were talking about containers and sandboxing. Um, I started playing around with Flatpak. Have you played around with that at all, no. Paul? What is Flatpak? Yeah, it, it, Flatpak is F-L-A-T-P-A-K. Is basically you can create a you can create an app distribution, and it's completely containerized and sandboxed. So you don't have to worry about the dependencies for the operating system. Everything basically comes with that standalone app. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a little container, but for desktop applications. Mm. And the reason why I bring this up is this whole idea of containers and scanning containers and going all the way through that. It isn't just this thing that's going to be in the cloud. You're going to see it on the desktops here soon. Yep. And really, we have to get better at being able to scan and look at vulnerabilities in these things than we are right now. I, yeah. I really wish there was really great software on windows that could do that for applications i think there's a lot of research and certainly some products on the market that do that but they all have somewhat shortcomings i think john is what we've Mm -hmm. been finding oh yeah even what microsoft has is application specific to edge uh and it Mm -hmm. changes like they introduce things and then they back you know back it out kind of thing i think microsoft is pretty well poised uh to have a great containerized system for applications on windows and they have some of that today right I don't I don't think that they've had to deal with it much. So I think that's one of the reasons why they've been so sluggish. If you're looking at the Linux community, yeah. um, just all the different distributions that exist and making sure that your product is basically compatible for all those distributions can be very difficult. Uh, if you're going even from like Debian to Ubuntu to Mint, mm. and working, once again, looking at the desktop aspect, you can totally have applications that will work on one but won't work on another. So, you know, I think in a lot of ways Windows is behind the curve, but I've been curious to see what happens with the Windows subsystem for Linux 2.0 coming out that now has a full Linux kernel shipping mm-hmm. with every single Windows system, has the capability for full X Windows applications, has the capability for the DirectX drivers to be down to those applications. So that might be part of the reason why Microsoft is making such a huge push on this mm. is it, it, it now opens up that entire platform to handle Windows apps and all the Linux apps as well. Um, so I think that that's a pretty interesting move that Windows has been making in this direction as well. Well, and along the lines of Windows containers, um, Anchor Security, uh, who I've looked at some of their stuff, uh, I think does a great job with container security, uh, has announced support for Windows containers. And these are, from what I read, Windows containers running on a Docker platform because they make references to Docker uh, in this article. So I thought that mm-hmm. was yeah, interesting. Doc- 
I mean, Docker and Microsoft has always had a really tight relationship. What I haven't seen, and, and John and I were talking about this beforehand, I haven't seen a large adoption of Microsoft containers, though. Right. So I'm not quite, I, I mean, look, if you're going to use Microsoft containers, here's a solution for you. I just don't know how many people are actually deploying Microsoft containers. Is that do, Now, when I looked into it, it looked like Windows had to be the host operating system to run Windows containers. Yeah, you there's a couple different very. There's a couple different variations. There's .NET Core that I believe you can run on Linux, mm -hmm. but if you're in a true .NET environment, then you need Windows. So right. there's some nuances there, Paul. Yeah. Well, I think it, it represents an awesome future for you know Windows operating systems running inside of containers and deploying them just like we do Linux containers. It, it's great. Mm -hmm. In fact, there might even be some security benefits to that, to be quite honest. And when I look at the container breakouts... They're, of course, very specific to Linux and take advantage of a lot of fundamental Linux just shortcomings, right? Like Linux capabilities is what a lot of the um, uh, kernel breakouts or breakout exploits for, for containers on Linux rely on. Yeah, and what's interesting with Windows containers is the technologies we're using on Linux containers don't really cross over. Now, right, unless, yeah. again, you're looking at .NET Core, you're looking at the Linux kernel embedded in there, then you can. But there's a whole new set of capabilities that have to be built. When we were at Layered Insight, we were getting rumblings from customers about what are you going to do for Microsoft containers? Because mm -hmm. it's a different tech stack that you have to build yes. solutions for. But again, back then, we didn't see enough... Adoption. Uh, adoption to really justify us building something. So it, it, it's an adoption issue, I think, at this point. Uh, salt stack, uh, 20 breaches within four days. Oh, this is kind of an interesting article. Um, salt stack has, has, has been a partner with us in the past. Uh, great technology, former coworker of ours, uh, is one of the leads over there, Mayhol. Um, and this is by no means an attack on their response. In fact, the article calls out SaltStack for having out of their way. Yeah, how, they did a fantastic job. Look, everyone that writes software, you've got bugs, you've got vulnerabilities, right? Whether they're your own or they come from some other library, you've, you've got bugs and vulnerabilities, right? Um, and their um, response was fantastic. The vulnerability was kind of interesting because it affected publicly accessible SaltStack servers and was so easy to exploit um, that SaltStack basically called it. They're like, look, if you don't apply this patch that we've created for you, we got it out, it's a working patch, uh, you're, you're going to get owned. And people did because they didn't apply the patch. Well, and, and this also gets into the much larger issue of kind of where everything is going, right? Um, if you're looking at deployments of SaltStack, salt People, once again, believe that whenever they install these application stacks, that somehow they're going to be more secure because it's in the cloud, because they right. like to say that they're doing DevOps. But the fact is, you know, we can sit down and we can spend five minutes on um, Shodan going through and looking for salt, salt stack implementations and very quickly identifying them and then identifying whether or not they'd be vulnerable to these types of things. The same type of thing happened with Mongo database a number yep. of years ago where it, where it deployed default out of the gate with no security or elastic map reduce clusters that I've talked about on this mm -hmm. show. And 
I, I have this problem where it's getting easier and easier to deploy applications, but it's getting harder and harder to actually start securing those applications and kind of wrangle those applications. And I feel like organizations are definitely leaning towards cloud deployment ease well above and beyond any security. And one of the reoccurring themes in the show that I talk about all the time is we talk about a lot of these vendors. And as the owner of a pen testing company, I'm not seeing these vendors in the cloud. Uh, Mm -hmm. all that much. That doesn't mean that they're not selling their product at all. It's just not making as much of an impact in the uh, cloud environments as we need to see in this industry, because we basically have taken all security, stripped it away, threw crap against the cloud, and hope that it's going to actually be secure, when the reality of it is it's not going to be that way. You do need security controls around these different apps. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and, and you said it, it's it's at the apps, mm-hmm. right? I, you mm-hmm. know, the, I think the challenge a little bit here is this shift from dedicated infrastructure to platforms and other cloud services, John, and this whole misunderstanding of what am I responsible for, what are the cloud responsible for. The higher levels in the stack are things you have to cover when you're in the cloud. It, it just doesn't matter. And configuration, well, to me, plays a much more important role in the overall um, ecosystem then in these infrastructure environments because there's so many different components that are interacting. And if one is misconfigured, it opens up a huge hole from an attack perspective. Well, and, and the other thing that I'm finding, and Matt, I'd love to get your take on this, is whatever I'm talking to organizations, let's just talk about DevOps, because that's usually a, the smoke test to find out if something's even somebody's even interested in this as a topic. I usually find in a company, they'll have one, maybe two people that are big into DevOps. They're big into cloud transitions. They understand the concepts. But the rest of the organization, we're talking the IT staff, the systems administrators, they'll say DevOps. Yeah, that's great. But they still are trying to implement the way that they did security in the past moving forward in the future. So there's just not enough people that actually get what the hell is going on because many people are like, well, we'll just stand up a VM and run our app in the VM. And that's the way that we've always done it. That's the way we're going to continue doing it in the future. Slap a DevOps sticker on it. We're good to go, right? And that's not the case. Mm. That's that's so true, right? It it is a huge cultural shift, both for the IT teams, but the security teams to give up that control that IT and security teams have had. And now you're giving it to the developers to do it themselves. I mean, this is a huge cultural shift. Mm-hmm. Thinking about the security, and, you know, of your application, oh, yeah. uh, Harry Sferdlove uh, from Edgewise uh, and myself and a bunch of other Security Weekly hosts last Thursday talked about this specific issue. And it's basically boiled down to trust, right? And take SaltStack's uh, software as an example. Their internals of their software aside, I'm deploying their software. If I've deployed it incorrectly, I've basically said, I trust the internet to connect to my service, right? And it really comes down to mapping out which uh, users, which applications, and maybe an extension, which, you know, netbox or IP addresses, largely that's not the case anymore. Who do I trust? And that has to surround Mm -hmm. the application. It also has to be inside the application as well. My application should run. If someone breaks into my application, let's limit what they can do inside of my application as well. Uh, and there are, there's great technology, Edgewise as an example, uh, they're a sponsor, um, but great technology to basically accomplish what you know, you're know you talking about is maintaining the trust of your application and integrity of your application, whether it's on-premise, in the cloud, wherever it happens to go. 
this is also a great segue into open source and open source vulnerabilities. You know, Vericode did their report. Synopsys also did a report this week on open source vulnerabilities and usage. I mean, look, we're leveraging a ton of open source code in these commercial applications now. And both Vericode and Synopsys are seeing the uptick of embedding more open source components in, which leads us back to that conversation about transient vulnerabilities in all these open libraries. But is you know, less and less of an application is being written by an organization. It's it's reuse of mm -hmm. other components with very little custom code on top. Mm. Yep. Uh, what else we got in here this week? Oh, we got all kinds of Lots, fun stuff. Yeah, There's what? a bunch of acquisitions in here yet. Um, uh, let's I want a swim lane analyst hub. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of vendors. I'm not knocking swim lane, um, but that try and create a community, uh, a hub, if you will, right around their product. I, I have a lot of mixed success in doing that. And, and, but I think that's the Holy grail, right? If, if you're a vendor and you're writing a product, you want it to become the community product that people are contributing tons of plugins. And there's lots of examples of how this has worked successfully. Look at Maltego. Uh, you have the Maltego marketplace. You fire up Maltego and you can add in all kinds of different mixins from tons of different vendors to greatly extend that platform. Even going so far as looking at Rapid7 and with Metasploit, they have they basically bought a community with Metasploit years ago, and they've been great shepherds of that community. So you always want that marketplace. You want that to be like the community place. Oh, and another good example would be um, uh, oh god, I just kind of had a complete brain fart. Um, Splunk. Um, the way Splunk actually works is there's tons of different plugins right. and things that you can do in a community. Splunk became that center of that community. So the best thing you can hope for as a vendor is if you have a core product and then you have lots of people contributing to that ecosystem, that makes your product that much better in the community, more ingrained. And uh, Snort would be an example of that as well. So. Yeah. And, you know, I think with Splunk, it took them a long time to really build that, right? I think vendors it, rush it, to it and look to it as like a quick thing. It takes time to build. I mean, unless you're like Rapid7, you just buy a community. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, but right I mean, now, HD, okay. but I was going to say, HD had to build that trust and build that community, yes, exactly. right? Um, and then Rapid7 embraced it. And you have to treat to that community it. with great respect moving forward to maintain it. Absolutely. You do. And I think, honestly, Splunk has started losing that because you look at the huge adoption of Elastic. Mm -hmm. um, or elk stacks, where now if anybody's in the sim space, I'm seeing more and more people get excited about what's going on with elk than they are with Splunk. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Again, open source. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that that keeps coming back around. Sure does. Um, I do. And look, VMware uh, announced on Wednesday during its virtual conference, they made an acquisition um, of. Octarine, I think is how it's uh, Octarine. It's a Kubernetes security company. This is interesting because of where they're going to integrate uh, this acquisition. Again, here we are back to applications, containers, the orchestrator, Kubernetes. Anybody getting a hint here on the theme? Um, this one's going to get integrated into two places, which I thought was interesting. One with the Carbon Black acquisition, because Carbon Black has been trying to figure out how to play in the container Kubernetes cloud space. They were doing some of their own research. This gives them some capabilities at the cloud workload side to add some capabilities into the Carbon Black, which is good. But they're also going to integrate some of this capabilities into uh, Tanzu, which is their... Um, 
Kubernetes runtime. Again, VMware has got to figure out how it's going to play long-term in the container space. Um, I think these are good moves for them because they're going to have to figure out how to embrace containerization as virtualization moves to containerization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was uh, one of the more interesting acquisitions this week. Yeah, the Venify one was pretty interesting too, right? It's on a similar path, right? It, but this is more about machine identities across all these disparate environments, including Kubernetes and cloud and APIs and all this other stuff. You know, I think we're going to continue to see an explosion of these different identities and, and the need to manage secrets across these different identities. I thought this acquisition was interesting. I don't know how it's going to come together yet, with Jetstack, but definitely see a need to manage the stuff better because we're just, with containerization, everything happening, just the number of identities that have to be managed are going to explode. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Nehemiah Security Risk Quantifier 4.0, um, modeling shared business risks. This is a company we did a briefing with a while oh, ago. This is, this is one. Oh, crap. Where is that? I, I did actually go through and look at this. And this, go ahead, Paul. I, I, I've got so some. They say, yeah, provides enhanced ability to quantify, communicate, and manage risk across enterprises' various lines of business. Not quite sure how they, I don't remember how they yeah. do that. I, so I, I, I hate this. Anytime anyone talks about automation of things that are purely subjective. If you look at risk, risk is very subjective to your mm -hmm. organization. I have yet to see anything that's like, oh, well, here's the overall risk to your organization. If you remember, Core tried that years ago, uh, trying to get paths to main administrator as far as automation of pen testing. We see that with a ton of different products in the vulnerability management space, where they go through and they're sc they scan and then they come up with like a modified CVSS score to come up with the overall uh, risk and trying to quantify what it is you should be focusing on. And I think that a lot of these products absolutely fundamentally prey on people not understanding computer security yeah. and not understanding the underpinnings of what's going on. So it's easier for them to say, well, I don't know where I should start. I got all these vulnerabilities. Where do I actually prioritize these? The right answer is get training, get to the point, hire people that know what they're doing. And the easy button is, well, I'm going to go buy a product and then the product's going to automatically tell me what I should focus on. And that almost always fails. Yeah, because I mean, there's two aspects uh, of risk that we talked about in, in an interview we did about the FAIR risk model, right? And that is impact mm -hmm. and probability. And like you Correct. said, John, it's very subjective. Those require, in most cases, a discussion, right? Right now mm -hmm. with, with actual human beings. Uh, I, I, I find it hard to believe that <laughs> there is technology that can like truly put a number on on those right based on input I, it's just it requires a human decision i think in, in even just those two aspects of risk right it, uh, it yeah. does so i actually have a patent on this called assessing risk in the business uh and it, it was based off of a lot of the work i did in the early days of grc in my in the control path startup that i had and to your point it, this is very difficult and it depends on what kind of risk you're talking about yeah inherent risk or residual risk. My algorithm really talked about how to measure residual risk, which is based on control deficiencies and overall understanding of business impact across an organization. How could I me measure residual risk? And we had a very interesting formula that Sean and I came up with back in those days. But that was only, that was a small subset of 
a much larger risk discussion. And, and over the years, I've learned that that approach, although not horrible, needed additional elements added to it if you were going to attempt to do a much more holistic risk calculation. Again, residual. Inherent risk is even harder, I think, because now you mm -hmm. have to identify in, in kind of, you know, I think it's this. And inherent risk is really, I think it's a lot tougher to do, where if I can do some measurements, I can pull in vulnerability and misconfiguration data, I could potentially measure an aspect of residual risk and get you pretty close, at least from a prioritization standpoint. But that means, Paul, to your point, probability mm -hmm. and impact have to be measured on a consistent basis or you'll never get there. Right. Well, and this gets into a much larger issue. And one of the reasons why I'm so vehemently against it is you have a lot of vendors now that are coming up that are talking about automation of red teams. And it's the same kind of theme. It's the same type of problem that's showing up again and again. Or people that do, well, we're going to automate APT28 against your organization and see how you do. What happens is we start to think that these concepts of risk are static. And I think that that's probably the biggest problem that you run into with anybody that's trying to calculate any type of risk formula is you believe mistakenly that you can basically boil it down within a formula and then that formula itself is static. Whereas in risk, with a dynamic risk calculation, you have users that are constantly trying to click on links from strangers. You have attackers that are constantly modifying their different techniques, trying to find additional vulnerabilities, trying to find additional misconfigurations. And that's really what's missing from a lot of risk calculation scores, mm -hmm. is belief that all of the inputs are static when in fact they're very dynamic and they're actually very much attracted to each other. And that's where it gets very hard to basically start to swallow the idea that somebody can say, well, we can automate a red team and emulate what an attacker is going to do. No, you can't. Yeah. The attacker is constantly going to change. Well, we can, audit, we can come up with a risk profile for your organization. No, you can't. Now, I think you can do it if you're going to do a vulnerability scan and say these are the missing patches and misconfigurations. I think you can do it within those areas because you can say what is actively being exploited today. But we did that years ago with the CVSS scores. So basically, people are trying to improve upon the CVSS scores, which in and of themselves are also subjective. But now we're trying to throw more subjective crap on top of it and then somehow magically say it's now objective and this is what you should be fixing in your organization. Yeah, and, and a lot of the models don't take in the dynamic aspects of what's going on. This is one of the limitations, I think, with FAIR that, that creates some angst for me is, how do you constantly feed the model with the latest and greatest data dynamically to adjust the risk scores and the overall impact to the business? It's very difficult. This is not easy mm -hmm. stuff, to your point, John. And, and I think the challenge with most risk models is they're a point in time too static where they need to be dynamic. Well, and it's interesting, yeah. you know, when I look at the FireEye announcement, um, they purchased Cloud Visory and have integrated that into a cloud security center uh, or some such thing. Uh, one of the features that I like, though, is they say they can block and quarantine attacks using cloud-native microsegmentation. That's fancy marketing speak, right? There's lots of different ways to accomplish that. The more important thing is, what are you monitoring, and how are you allowing me to make that decision, back to our risk uh, profile, right? It certainly needs a, a risk calculation to decide, do I want to block it, do I want to quarantine it, 
or do I just want to alert on it? It's a great feature, and a lot of vendors are doing great work. Extra Hop gave us a great demo. Uh, they're a sponsor as well, right, about being able to quarantine uh, assets in the cloud uh, based on detections. Uh, so lots of great work going on, but what, what, what's feeding that, right? In Extra Hop's yeah. case, it's the network. The network doesn't doesn't lie, right? And you can get really accurate results, as we've shown, you know, in, in our product, yep. John, that we worked on, right, is mm-hmm. a high degree of confidence that this is bad traffic, right? In yep. the FireEye announcement, how, what what are you monitoring and this how, is, right? This is this is actually beautiful. I think this is so. This goes back to Paul. You remember years ago we were doing work with uh, Cloud Passage a mm-hmm. uh, long, long, long time ago with Chris. When Chris Brenton was still there, right? And the idea that you can create uh, like a cloud, what Cloud Passage does, which is very similar to Cloudvisory, where you can create a unified look for managing the firewall rules, managing mm-hmm. the compliance rules, managing the alerts from multiple different implemented cloud instances is beautiful because you're making that job easier for the systems administrators. I don't have to go through do NetSH ADV firewall rules on yeah. Windows systems. I don't have to go do IP tables rules on Linux computer systems. You can basically see one standardized dashboard for managing all of your assets. And that, I think that that was really cool with Cloud Passage, but that was for full VMs. As soon as you started going to apps being deployed yep. in the cloud, I think that that changed that game dramatically. Because you lose the IP address, basically. I mean, a lot of stuff in the cloud doesn't have an I, a, a static IP address, certainly. Every time I spin up a Lambda, it gets a new one. <laughs> API gateways, like, IP address is gone. Like, it's an asset. It's, it's either your app or it's the cloud provider's app, right? How do I I like to think of it as an analogy of a car, right? If you have a full virtual machine, you have a full car. And the way a lot of applications are deployed in the in the cloud now is yep. like, here, take this engine and plug it into AWS. And you've lost mm-hmm. all of the carness around it. Mm-hmm. And the, that's all handled by Amazon now. Um, so I, I think it's cool that we're looking at ways that we can try to unify this management. And I think that one of the things that Matt's presentation a number of months ago, talking about what a complete picture looked like that was difficult, is there was no one vendor, Matt, that was actually unifying it all. You had to go mm-hmm. through and tie mm-hmm. together multiple different vendors and plug them in, and you were still looking at multiple dashboards. And that underlies the problem with the migration to the cloud as it exists today. Yeah. So many services, so many different components that have to be integrated together. It's very difficult. There's a couple that are doing good chunks of it, but still, the mm-hmm. full visibility of that stack is very, very difficult. Uh, any other articles you want to close this segment out with? I- just, just obviously, for those who haven't seen the news yet, oh, yeah. RSA conference got bumped from February to May. It's now May 17th, um, that the week of May 17th. Uh, that's pretty big news. I mean, obviously, we, we heard the news a couple weeks ago with the cancellation of the physical conferences, both at Black Hat and DEF CON. Now we have our largest security event being pushed out three full months. Uh, in 2021. So just for those people out there that are, were kind of playing in their 2021 stuff, um, RSA conference is now May. I I think largely this is a really good thing for a lot of reasons. Uh, one being the earlier in the year RSA was pushed up, the more tunnel vision you can fall into in a marketing program. And you end up playing catch up like the whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. So in December, you know, November, you're trying to plan all of next year, but you've got, like Matt said, the largest conference in the beginning of the year. So your planning for the next year is all focused on RSA, right? Because there's a ton of planning if you're going to pr- be at that event in any capacity, right? 
Uh, and, and then everything in the beginning of the year is really just like, oh, we got to finish getting ready for RSA. And then they come out of it and go, all right, what, what else were we going to do for the rest of the year in terms of, in terms of marketing? Well, uh, and, you know, I that's think it's sometimes where we would step in and go, you know, marketing is not a calendar year. Like you, it's a constant cycle you have to be mm-hmm. thinking about. Right. Uh, and that's where I think, you know, we try and help, uh, our sponsors understand that complete cycle. Uh, and how easy it is to fall into that tunnel vision of the largest conference. Yeah. Well, and I hate it for one simple, very selfish reason. Uh, I think that they put it right on top of when Wild West Hacking Fest is in San Diego. Yeah. So uh, that's selfish on my part. <laughs> is that in 2021? You had scheduled May already? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think we're looking yeah. at the end of May. That's hard. I'm sure gonna, that wasn't on purpose. Up? I mean, that's hard, no, no. though, to know, <laughs> to know when and then, yeah, it's hard. Well, everything's shifting. It's going to continue shifting, and it's okay. Yep. We'll get through it on the other side. Agreed. Yep. Awesome. Well, that concludes the Enterprise Security News for this week. Stay tuned. Dan from PlexTrack coming up next. <laughs>